0: Hello and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Today I am sitting outside the Bachelor United Church on the front lawn in front of our brick wall where we have a brand new beautiful angel mural painted onto the front of the church with the artist, Kyle Simmers. So Kyle, I'm so excited that you could fit in some time to have a conversation with me today before you head home to Calgary. Welcome to the podcast. Hi Ben, thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> I've been, uh, I've listened to the Six Ways for Sunday for uh, quite some time, so it's fun to be on the other
0: end of the mic. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you on as a guest. As I mentioned, we, we put out a, con- a conversation, usually it's just a casual conversation over a cup of coffee, new episode every second Friday, and uh, with just a wide diversity of guests and stories, Um, usually about the deeper questions of being a human being and people's spiritual journey stories. And what I thought would be great for us to talk about is um, like just a whole bunch of stuff, your art, your journey as a human being, all of that. So this is really open-ended, we could go anywhere with this. And where I think it would make sense to start is since we're sitting here in front of these beautiful wings that you just completed yesterday, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist Mm -hmm. and how this project came to be. Yeah, um, the fun part about talking about like, uh, you know,
1: exploring like human experiences and uh, my journey as a person is that that coincides with my journey as an artist so closely in a a really interesting way where, um, particularly with the graphic novel series that I work on, um, it's been so interesting because I put so much of myself into that project um, that that project teaches me things about myself, and I have so much learning that I experience through that work. Um, and yeah, so my uh, practice is pretty much threefold these days. I uh, spend the majority of my time working on the uh, graphic novel series that I co-write and illustrate. Um, I co-write it with my friend Ryan Danny Owen, uh, who's an artist, uh, drag performer, and queer historian in Calgary. and. Uh, in the summertime, when it's warm enough, I typically collaborate with my brother Derek Simmers on mural projects, and then uh, sprinkle in some freelance illustration, doing beer labels and editorial illustration, and uh, things of that nature to keep the bills paid. <laughs> <laughs> nice mix, eh? Hey?
0: Yeah. Keeps me so, on my toes. So. so, since you mentioned the the graphic novel, let's maybe back up a little bit to that, and have you... And we'll, I mean, we're going to go all over the place, so I want to talk about your mural art in more depth. And some of the projects that you worked on in Basha this summer that are all over town, beautifying our community. But um, the Pass Me By is the title of your of your book. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about where that project came from and what Pass Me By is
1: about. Yeah, so uh, Pass Me By is the series and our first book was titled Gone Fishin'. Um, and it's a queer rural Canadian tragedy about a man dealing with a dementia diagnosis as well as diving into his memories, particularly of the 1970s when he went on a tour with a glam rock band and experienced something of a queer awakening. Um, the first book came through some school projects that I worked on um, that I had started back when my maternal grandmother was in the early stages of, uh, of dementia. And it was something that was, it, it was family trauma and it was something that sort of affected um everyone in the family in in a way or another and i was having a lot of difficulty processing it and i made this like little six page comic that uh tried to find like some light and humor in that situation through this character ed that i created i i came back to that again in my fourth year when i was the resident of a illegal little studio residency <laughs> that my friend Ryan Danny Owen had set up in ACAD within one of their studio spaces. They had like a little corner that had enough room. Yeah. And I w- ended up working with Ryan quite a bit on different projects, but particularly on this like second draft of what would later become uh, Pass Me By.
0: So at this point though, was it just kind of something you were doing for fun? It
1: was, it was something that I felt had a lot of potential and a lot of heart to it like I had worked on this project and I just like I knew that there was something there um and it sort of grew into this it grew so much originally the idea for it was maybe a one book of 120 150 pages and I brought Ryan on board to help me out with dialogue um, for the most part and when we started working together you know we we started talking about Um, Ed's experience in contemporary life and dealing with family or lack thereof and these sort of feelings of being lost and depression and loneliness. Um, And we started to also talk about like, you know, if Ed's losing their memories, what is it that's being lost? What's the history there? Who is this person? And what's um, being erased by this disease? And that brought up a lot of really interesting ideas about Ed being a musician in the 70s and going on tour. And um, we both started to feel like Ed was a queer character in some some sort of way. And that ended up growing into what's become our second book, um, Passing by Electric Vice. Um, so there's sort of a Subversion of expectations in Gone Fishing. You're sort of introduced to this very rural masculine archetype Uh, where's a lot of denim and um, Just sort of soft-spoken and drinking black coffee at a diner going out fishing on the lake and uh, interacting with people throughout the small community and then in uh, Electric Vice we almost we take a detour into Ed's past that sort of changes the way that you read the first book and because you've read the first book, you'll have a different reading of the second book. Um, Electric Vice sort of centers around this little deluge that Ed goes on, where uh, Ed I- falls into the uh, the uh, the wake of uh, the charismatic and androgynous Lou, who's the lead vocalist of this glam rock band, Electric Vice. Okay. And yeah, it starts. It's a story about um, Ed growing and changing and pulling at uh his own expectations of of who he is and how he fits into the world um yeah it's uh it turned into i think a, a pretty compelling queer romance um full of a lot of a heartbreak and uh lipstick leather and neon light so it's it's pretty exciting <laughs> it, it's a it's definitely a change of pace from the first book which was very soft-spoken and um sort of a slow-burn narrative. Um, that really, both both books definitely take their time and like let you bring your own experiences into a lot of the world. Okay. Like one of my favorite things to do is um, really illustrate sequences of what people are feeling rather than have that directly set out in dialogue and whatnot. I think that creating these things that, it leans into my wheelhouse as being the illustrator. And um, you know, rather than directly laying out what Ed might be experiencing in a scene, um, I can create that in a way that's structured by Ed and their environment and their body. And the, um, it allows people to bring in their own experiences of um, disease, mental illness, um, or, or even just heartbreak. And, uh, you know, the struggles that that anyone ne- neurodivergent or, or neurotypical goes through. Yeah, there's,
0: there's definitely a thread of sort of darkness mm-hmm. through this, the first book. I remember um, reading it. And think, feeling that right, like feeling yeah. just this sadness and this like loss, feeling that disconnectedness, feeling that loneliness that mm-hmm. Ed goes through. Um, I was so growing up. I was never, I never went through like a phase of like hardcore being into comic books or graphic novels, like a lot of kids get into. I think boys especially, because there's this like, well, if there's pictures, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna read the the comic book, right? I didn't really go through a comic book phase, but when I read your book. I remember. So, as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. I connected to it as an art, as a just appreciating your artistry and and the um, the way that you will tell a story visually. Mm-hmm. And it sort of reminded me of. Uh, narrative film where a lot of the frames are like you're kind of setting up a scene through like a close-up of a jacket laying on the floor Mm -hmm. or a close-up of a cigarette in an ashtray or of the coffee cup and 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 taking different perspectives on like seeing the coffee cup from above instead of from a normal vantage point of where someone would be seeing it walking into the cafe Mm -hmm. and it's been a while since I've looked at the book but those are a few that have kind of that come back in my memory as just like wow that's sort of the way like a director of photography on a film would set up some of these shots and they're not always about like narration or, or like sort of dialogue in that scene it's yeah, sometimes yeah. just about creating the feeling of of the whole scene through little bits yeah. and pieces and then so so is that what you mean by help allowing the reader to sort of bring them themselves into the story
1: yeah yeah like um it's uh, that you mentioned, like, that it's a very cinematic book. That's. Um,
0: it was that's intentional? Intentional. That's yeah, cool.
1: Uh, Ryan and I, when we're writing the book, um, we, wa- we were watching a tremendous amount of films, and we were like, you know, we would watch them and we'd talk about them throughout and afterwards. And um, particularly, I can remember when we were writing the opening, we were struggling with it a bit. And so we took. I think a dozen movies that we like the openings of and we would watch the first 10 minutes and then huh. we would talk about, okay, how did this set up? What happens in the rest of the movie? How does this do this and that? And yeah, very much, very much, um, influenced by film and television. Um, and yeah, there's like, I, I can't remember the name of it, but like, there's like, this like Japanese style of like setting up scenes where, you know, like you'll have a teapot, um, boiling on a stove pot and it like, um, goes whistling and it really creates this high intensity thing. Right. And you've not shown any people, but you've already set up the tone of that scene. You've already set up this like boiling sensation and you kind of have this like emotional feel to these inanimate objects that are around. Um, I think that's a really effective way of creating a immersive experience
0: in a, in a comic or in a film. Yeah. It's a powerful form of storytelling for sure. Or Mm -hmm. style of storytelling. So, um, before we dive into another storytelling format of your mural art, mm-hmm. just give us a sort of an update on where you're at with the the Pass Me By series. I know you've yeah. won some awards, but not had some nominations and some awards with the first um, installment of the series, and now you're about to release the second book.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, the story of the uh, the series is that um, again we this was a project we knew that there was something to it and we just wanted to make it happen and we weren't going to wait for permission. Um, so we didn't do the classic, um, typically with a book you would put together six to a dozen pages and, and you'd have your script and you'd send it off to a publisher and be like, Hey, do you want to pay me to make this? Um, we didn't bother with that. We made half the book, ran a Kickstarter campaign, um, printed a, uh, which was, uh, quite successful and printed a risograph series. And, um, Rhizograph is like almost like silkscreen, more so than it is digital printing. It gives you these insane colors that you can't get with like offset or CMYK printing. Huh. And throughout this process, we had been in touch with an Alberta publisher, Renegade Arts Entertainment. Um, once the book was done and we had things ready to go, they were keen to help us with a ride release. So we released it across Canada in 2019 and ended up on CBC Books' list of Best Canadian Comics of 2019, 2020. I think it was a little bit too late, so it might have been 2020. Um, that went on to, uh, Gone Fishing was selected for the Alberta Reads Book Club, um, which was a book club that started in 2020. Um, a d- division of uh, the Ministry of Culture or something started this, this book club that we were a part of. And that uh, catapulted us into the Book Publishers Awards uh, for 2020, where we were awarded Best Illustrated Book. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, And then the story continues with uh, passing by Electric Vice, which I, again, uh, just brute force and ignorance uh, (laughs) thrown at it. And a a ton of labor over the past two uh, two years. Um, Worked on it with a residency in Arts Commons downtown, which was remote because of the pandemic, but um, ended up finishing that up here in the spring, uh, running another successful Kickstarter campaign. And we are releasing Passing by Electric Vice on October 20th. So it's really soon.
0: Yeah. So what does that look like? Does it mean you have a pallet of boxes of books arriving in Calgary at your place and you're going to try to distribute them through different stores or is it going to be on Amazon available? How, how can, I guess my question is how can people find it? Yeah. And what is sort of the strategy for getting the book out there? Yeah. So that's where,
1: um, a lot of the front end work, um, really falls on Ryan and I. Um, but that's where we have the support of Renegade now. And so, um, Renegade has boxes of books and boxes (laughs) of books and, um, yeah, they've been, um, working out, uh, deals with, uh, large chain, small book shores. Um, we're going to be in Canada, the U S and the UK. Wow. Um, yeah, like with our first, I remember the, with gone fishing, like going into like a chapter or several chapters and like seeing my book up on display in the, uh, yeah. section when we were part of the book club. Yeah. So yeah, you'd be able to, uh, you should be able to find it at, um, you know, uh, chapters in larger centers. Um, the best way to get it is probably, uh, through our publisher's website, um, at com. Yeah. Um, that'll mm-hmm. be an easy way to get it shipped to you, but, uh, if you have a favorite local bookstore, call them up. Um, if they don't have it in, they'll be able to order it in and, uh, yeah,
0: you'll be able to get yourself a copy, uh, starting in October. That's so exciting. How, how many books do you see the whole series being before the story's complete or do you know? Um, we've got it slated out as five books right now. Um...
1: And I think that's probably pretty close to how it'll be. I think that they're going to keep growing in size. Um, it was like 124 pages for book one. This one's like 168. And I'll probably be doing 200 for the next one. So I've got my work cut out for me. This is like... I Originally, I thought, you know, it'll take me a year to do these comics. I'll be done in five years. And now it's looking more like 10 or 12. So yeah. I've really uh, set up some commitment for myself.
0: No kidding. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how they evolve. And if you... You know, tweak sort of the either the color palette or the printing style, or mm-hmm. there's so many options, right? It, with even the, is it risograph you said? Risograph, yeah. It, so. Some I'd never heard of and probably didn't exist, you know, ten years ago or I it, don't know. Is it maybe it's been around for a long time? But the, that that whole industry seems to be kind of changing and evolving, and there's new options, new ways of getting books out there. Kickstarter mm-hmm. didn't used to be a thing, yeah. But, you know, so just being able to really bootstrap your your way into the series and now starting to get this recognition some different awards uh, wider distribution that's like it's super exciting and so cool that you're from little old basha yeah <laughs> you know, this small town artist that's breaking out onto the um graphic novel scene um i'm sure that as as much as it's exciting i know from our conversations just as friends that There's also been challenges throughout Mm -hmm. the last couple of years of pushing hard to meet deadlines, just pushing yourself hard as an artist and the, the emotional and mental energy that it, uh, the toll that that can take just in cranking out good content and making deadlines, all of those things. Um, what's that part of it been like for you in, in terms of mental health and self-care and making sure that you're not destroying yourself in the production of something beautiful? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, I
1: have a tendency to ask a lot of myself. Um, and yeah, being an artist is, is way harder than I thought it would be. Um, I have to admit that. Um, I like knew going into it, like you, you always hear like, you're not going to make much money. Um, (laughs) I didn't realize like quite how little, uh, and (laughs) quite how hard you would have to work to make that. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a process, um, from times and, um, And it's something that you're so invested in. Like, I I paid my way through art school doing uh, labor jobs like construction or working in a steel mill over in Camrose. And um, if something went wrong on one of those jobs, well, I'm paid by the hour and, you know, water off a duck's back. When I'm working on a mural or when I'm working on the, the book or an illustration project and things aren't going well, you know, I've invested so much in that. And I, <laughs> right. uh, and I, it's hard not to take it personally. So it can be quite the ride.
0: Um, but you're also on the financial side. You're also, you're not, all of a sudden you're not paid by the hour. Exactly. You're paid for the final product. And so you just see that hourly rate getting smaller and smaller, the more time you invest. But it's also a reflection of your ability as an artist and you want it to be its best, I'm exactly. sure. Exactly. Yeah, that's where like... Um,
1: I think every mural that we've done, I've always thought like, yeah, Nick, like we'll do this same thing and we'll be way faster at it. But every time that we come to a mural, we always ask more of ourselves and we always want to try new things and we always want to, um, keep growing. Um, and that takes time and that takes energy and that takes, um, little mistakes and things you have to fix and it's risky. And, um, and yeah, when uh, these things are as labor-intensive as they are, it can it's quite the process. You know, like the Curling Rink mural uh, we spent over 270 hours on. Uh, the Texaco that's in town between Derek and I, I think, was about 218 over the course of three weeks. So, you know, wow. these aren't quite uh, paintings that I can knock off a week in my studio with, uh, with the scale and the complexity of them. Um, but I think that's also what makes them, you know, uh so great in the end cuz i think that labor really shows and it's also i i think it's exciting for people in the community to be going by and seeing this work being mm. constructed in comparison to like in calgary when a artist from new york or italy will be commissioned to do a sculpture and then you know it's fabri- maybe it's fabricated by a team in calgary but it's in a shop no one sees it it shows up on site it's installed by a bunch of contractors and then everyone's like oh i guess we have some new art to process Right,
0: but there isn't that connection. There's okay? not that
1: connection, and you know, people can come by and they can talk to us, and um, a- and they can see the way that the thing goes up. There's like a there's there's a reality to it
0: that emerges through seeing the process that I think is really exciting, and especially when it is in your hometown. Both you and Derek were you know, born and raised here in Basha. There's been a lot of buzz and excitement about these angel wings right behind you, mm-hmm. and the curling rink and the Texaco mural. Um, what does that feel like for you to have people stop and make comments or to see stuff on Facebook or on Instagram, people admiring it and just loving what it's doing to the community? Yeah. I mean, um, it's one of the best parts about doing, uh, doing public
1: art. Um, you know, I, I really love that, that I'm doing this work that exists on a street corner. Um, you know, this one's across from the school that, um, kids can come over and take their photo and, you know, um, Anyone, whether they're a member of this church or or, or, uh, live in the community even can uh, drive by and experience them. Um, I think that's so valuable compared to like doing work for private commissions where it goes in a collector's home or sits in a gallery or something where there's, there's just not the accessibility to it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I really love that they, they exist within the public sphere in a, um, in, in a very accessible way. Um, and having those people come by and give the comments and uh, show their appreciation, you know, that, that warms my heart. And it uh, uh, that that's what can help me get through the tough times when I'm uh, struggling over how much I'm
0: overworking myself. <laughs> right, for, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you're close to burnout or hitting those road bumps. Um, and, and I want to dive further into that vein a yeah, little yeah. bit um, around, like, self-care and all of that as well. But one thing you just made me think of with uh, your comments about, like, public art is that interactive component the connection this piece especially it's so interactive because the whole point is for you to take your picture in front of the angel wings yeah, right yeah. so and you've deliberately positioned it at a height where a 6 or 7 year old or i mean anyone any age of child or adult can stand in front of it and they look like an angel and yeah, yeah. feel that divinity or feel that holiness that's mm-hmm. i believe in in all of us would For you, what do you think that does for people to stand in front of those colorful, beautiful, glowing wings and have their picture taken or just have a giggle or put a smile on someone's face? What what does that do for people? I think it's
1: it's a fun little experience and uh, I'm really excited by the placement um, and the size of the wings. I think that, yeah, if a six or seven year old sits in front of it and has these huge wings, it's gonna look so good.
0: yeah, it's, uh, do, to do, to do. How did, how did you feel standing in front of it and you had your mom here yeah. and you took Arlene's I, picture, she took your picture, um, seeing that photo and knowing that it's on a church, like, I don't, yeah. I don't really know where you stand in terms of like how you feel about being like, you know, inv- connected to like the ch- church aspect or re- yeah, yeah. what your religious
1: position is. But no, I, um, I love it. I mean, I have like quite the connection to this, um, to this space from, you know, my community theater days and, um, which we'll probably get into later. You know, yeah. when I have gone through some rough spots, Robin, um, has been a person that I could call or, um, come visit, um, same with Lori. And, um, yeah, I think like, I've definitely experienced a feeling like where I felt like I was something of an angel for people before, like, I. Uh, I've also been that person that people can come to or I've just like been um, you know one day I was like out for like a longboard ride and I was going past a neighborhood that a friend lived in and so I called them up to see what they're up to. Turned out that that friend was having a really hard time and they had just had a family member commit suicide and I was like I am so happy that I'm like here and like I can just like swing in and spend the day they were like at work just like making pizza dough in the back and i just (laughs) hung out got covered in flour and and just spent some time with them because i knew that they Mm. needed someone around and yeah i definitely felt like an angel in that moment i think that that's like um it's an idea that we connect to and embody and sort of channel at different points in our lives um i definitely think that like yeah ideas like angels and um you know even uh older like mythic gods and things i think that those those are very much ideas that point towards a sort of spiritual experience that anyone as a human being can channel
0: Mm. regardless of being a member of a church or part of a structured religion yeah yeah, robin and i talk about that on this podcast frequently that christianity in in quotes is is this structured religion that Mm -hmm. i mean it it literally is this is just a structure, a system of whatever you want to call it, the packaging mm-hmm. around a, a set of beliefs. But ironically, and Carrie, Carrie Domstead, who was our last guest on a couple weeks ago, she and I were talking about this too, that the irony of Jesus Christ, this, this spiritual leader and teacher and rabbi and figurehead that people worship thousands of years later, 2,000 years later, he when he was walking on this planet was all about tearing down the structure and mm-hmm. and challenging the um, the leadership and challenging the systems and rules of the day he was, he was quite the
1: communist he like wanted to get rid of all <laughs> that and like it was a
0: uh, it was a very egalitarian movement yeah <laughs> and and then you know 2000 later years later we have this very structured religious system mm-hmm. that's in his name and i feel like he'd be having this giant palm moment, saying like, "You guys, that was not the point." That was the thing that we were. Yeah, that's a that's I a funny. I preached, you know, loving everyone, inclusivity, and the God being that divinity, that angelicness, mm-hmm. being a part of everyone, not just the elite or the the, the people that are part of this club or that it's, group. It's so funny how that happens. That makes me think of um, there's
1: some uh, art institutions in Calgary that were started back, I think, in the 90s. And they were, like, the counter to, like, the art institution and the gallery scene. And um, it was uh, these artists who were running these spaces. And it was a very much like a rebellion against the systems that existed there. And then over the course of 20 years, they have become the exact, like, they have become so similar to the systems that oh, they were man. trying to rebel against. Yeah, um, It's so weird how movements, like, can there's an essay that i don't remember the name of where it talks about like any sort of system of thought or governance or organization um will inherently have the rules for its own downfall written into it um (laughs) that like just that that's the way of things you know um things are always contextual and they're always responding to an environment and as that environment changes that if that idea isn't changing as well it will degrade um Right, right, you know, maybe that's like the process of democracy that we're we're trying for, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, or just the the inevitable um flawed nature of being human be- being a human yeah. being, and I think it's a human c- society it, it's definitely like i I try to approach things with like a cyclical sort of
1: um mode of thinking i think in in Western cultures, we often have this very linear sort of thought of how progress functions. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Economy is supposed to just grow year over year, and economy's everything's just, just to, to grow, yeah, up and, and up you know, and
1: um, there's this very linear progression of you know you're a child, and then you go to school, and then you go to college, and then you get the job, and you get the family, and you yeah. get this, and then you get that, and then you retire, and then I guess you die. You know, it's very linear. Yeah. Um, and I I think that there's there's a lot that we can learn from um, other systems of thought that have have a way more Uh, nuanced approach to how things progress. There's um, this conversation that I love between um, Noam Chomsky and Michel Foucault from back in the 70s. And um, Noam Chomsky was kind of talking from this position as a linguist of this sort of like linear ascent of knowledge. And Michel Foucault was talking about it being more like grids that overlay each other. And, you know, Things that are caught by a certain type of grid that maybe has a more spiritual understanding um, will catch things that fall through, you know, our current sort of rationalist materialist mode, which can organize and categorize a lot of life, but will miss other important elements that other systems of thought would have got. And hmm. so it's less of this linear climb up of a mountain and it's more of this change. Um, I, I think ultimately change is, is one of the most fundamental forces of this earth this existence and us as a part of it but um the whole universe really
0: not even just the the, you know the weather patterns and the cycles of nature and different species or different seasons changing on Mm -hmm. earth but the constant evolving and stretching of the universe the fact that it's all started with this little giant explosion from Mm -hmm. a single singularity right that it's constantly in a state of change. Like Mm -hmm. one, literally one day our sun will burn itself out. Yeah. Um, there is no permanency in Mm -hmm. anything around us in the, in the natural world. Right. Um, and you know, we are in this time right now of we're on the cusp of heading into fall, right. We're early in September and things are all those signs of change are around us and Mm -hmm. leaves are starting to turn beautiful colors and everything. And, but I, I like what you're saying about, um, shifting to a paradigm or perspective of seeing things as more cyclical. And I Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of ancient wisdom in cultures that we've kind of ignored in Western society, whether it's indigenous culture and Mm -hmm. beliefs and spiritual beliefs around, you know, uh, the source of creation and the source of life and just the connectedness to the cycles of nature, right? The cycles Mm -hmm. of the moon, the cycles of the forest and of the wildlife, the cycles of, uh, the the watershed that we're that we uh, live in uh, all of those operate in cycles, and then we try to force this like linear thinking onto it.
1: Yeah we try to be very literal and and very materialist in a lot of our understanding. yeah I think that um you know like indigenous perspectives and Eastern perspectives are, that lend themselves more towards metaphor, I think are very powerful in the same sort of way that I like to write my book with, these sequences that are open to interpretation right i think that metaphor functions in that way um and because that always allows you when you come back to that metaphor even you as the same person encountering it a few years later are going to bring a different experience to it and you're going to understand that metaphor in a new way and the metaphor is not changed it's been written in the same way yeah but the experience the subjective experience of it has changed yeah um just as you've changed
0: yeah and to me the um like scripture or the like the bible is that way too exactly. jesus's teachings his his own words were like that he would speak in metaphors he would speak in parables right mm-hmm. and they were literally stories that the whole point was that they would mean something to the person hearing it mm-hmm. uh, relevant to the context that they lived in the time that they lived in mm-hmm. and so he, there was a lot of stories about people being you know fishermen and yeah um like carpenters and a lot of stories about birds and about the grass in the fields because that was relevant to the people he was talking to or drawing water from a well like everything was like in that mode of storytelling right really, mm-hmm. right um one thing that i was just thinking about that ties back to your mural work here in town is the giant mural on the side of the curling rink mm-hmm. is sort of this Lends into the past. Mm-hmm. It's like this. I think it was commissioned by the Basha Historical Society. Yeah, that's right. And um, it was a uh, refurbishing, I guess you call it, right? Of, of I, an existing mural. Yeah, I, I've called it a restoration. Restoration, right? That's the um, better word. And and so you're you're taking these images, like sort of a mm-hmm. montage of like settlers and like a horse-drawn wagon and um, all these elements uh, that are contextual to this community. Uh, over the last 115 years or so that Mm -hmm. Basha has been around Um, but it's it kind of when you look at it it's beautiful just as as art Mm -hmm. but it also kind of makes you think about the past and makes you think about like hmm that's what this that's what this community looked like and was like a hundred years ago. That one's really fun because um, when Dave Moore originally
1: painted it um A lot of the elements were drawn from the archives so you know when we were working on it people would come by and be like that's my grandfather or this is so and so or like I know this building I I used to get the newspaper there or or whatever and um so there is is a real connection to the community there um it was also interesting to interpret for Derek and I um through like a storytelling lens and we kind of were like thinking about it as this like narrative where um we talked about um emily the school teacher on the side like being the narrator of this story and then like the two folks in the uh uh the vehicle like they were like kind of like the dukes of hazard like protagonists (laughs) of the story and like the the mountie um we ended up like there's a lot of smoke behind him and there's kind of like this villainous quality like we felt like he was kind of like the sheriff roscoe like antagonist figure and then the you know we kind of came up with these little stories for everyone in the piece
0: yeah was, did that turn into just kind of a, a fun way to pass the time through these 280 hours of <laughs> painting keep and taping and spraying and setting up moving ladders? Yeah. The connection that you and Derek must have on literally a spiritual level and like just uh, being brothers, but then also this connection through the art form and mm-hmm. having this shared um, skill, that you're both you know so passionate about and you're it's not like okay this is my half of the painting that's your half Mm -hmm. and there's i'm guessing there isn't this competitive nature to it it's a it's a collaboration in the best sense of the word the definition of it and you're doing that with your brother what's that like Yeah. I mean, it's, um,
1: it really relies on trust and it's something that we've had to work towards. Um, some of our earlier projects we would fight, um, (laughs) and it would be, there'd be conflict for sure. Um, and yeah, but working together, we've really discovered where our strengths and our weaknesses are. And it so happens that they seem to fit together very well. So like, um, I, I know the elements of, um, You know, there's a lot of logistics and planning and administration work that happens um, Mm -hmm. before these things ever, ever even get started. Um, And that sort of falls into my camp. I have a brain that sort of works for that and I like sending emails. Um, I'm also really big on like the design part of things and visualizing what it could be and working with big shapes. And um, Hmm. yeah, I really like to get up there and cover a lot of ground um, really quickly. And then Derek can go and focus in and spend three hours just like painting reflections on a bell, and like wow. Derek um, will do like improvisations that I would never think of, and hmm. um, and and Derek also always uh, is just like a Zen master, and we'll just like no matter we hit the project, and from start to finish, Derek's just like having a fine time. It's, it's progressing. It's this and that. For me. Yeah. I would say like 50% of the time that like first week or so is rough. I just, oh, like, really. So, sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it goes great and things go according to plan and I feel wonderful. If things don't go according to plan or, um, you know, on the curling rink, I was originally trying to like paint stroke for stroke the way that, uh, Dave Moore had. And, um, on the Texaco, that's um, corrugation of the metal would just re- it would take 10 times as long to mask something and then i'd pull it off and it had dripped and it was there was challenges involved that uh weighed on me quite heavily i would have a miserable mm. time and sit around like why have i done this to myself <laughs> no one has put this on me i am the, <laughs> the bartender <laughs> of my own demise um but uh yeah derek is always working very uh very smoothly throughout that whole process so I, I know that work is happening and i always have comfort in that right. and i eventually figure it out every time we i've gotten through it i've Sold like the fought problem. through that, that yeah. doubt and worry and once things start to look more solid and complete or i've figured out how to paint a clean line on that damn corrugated metal like once i have that i can like cling to it and start working and um building that confidence back and yeah you know everything that we've done i've been really happy with in the end so we always get there sometimes it's a bit of a process yeah
0: everything is a learning curve right and even you're talking about how um something as simple as having a new piece of equipment like this the sprayer that you're using on Mm -hmm. these wings and used it on the texaco quonset that that was a game changer that Mm -hmm. that opens up new efficiencies or new styles right yeah Um, so when you hit what I'm curious about that we were starting to touch on a while back um, and I'd like to circle back to is when you hit those roadblocks or those stumbling points and you're starting to have doubts you're starting to think this is either going to be a train wreck of like way more work for the amount of money involved or Mm. maybe it's a case of like are we going to get the art grant to even do the project are we going to get picked by the store owner to do the mural on the side of their business are we are they going to pick someone else like there's all these insecurities that all of us artists have at different Mm -hmm. points uh within a project or within this you know the trajectory of our career path what um what sort of grounds you or helps you to get through those really tough moments and and what's it what's it been like for you yeah i mean
1: um i might meander on a bit of a story here so um I used to, uh, like art school had taught me some very like destructive methods of productivity. I had almost built this like negative energy engine where I could take like the doubt and fear and self-loathing that I was feeling and I would turn that against myself in a almost violent fashion where I was like, you know, like you're only good for work and that's what you're gonna do. And I would like chain myself to my desk. And I had a project, we painted this uh, kiss mural in Inglewood that's a uh, sort of uh, gender swap, gender ambiguous take on the victory over Japan day photo from Times Square.
0: The dip and the yeah. swooping. Yeah. Yeah. It's still yeah. one of my favorites. But, I love that.
1: Um, working on that, I, wha- we were projecting it and um, it was one of the first ones that we'd had to project in two parts and we messed it up and it was in July, late July. So we had, um, you have to wait until it's dark and it's, 11 o'clock by the time we realize we've made a mistake it's one in the morning and i was not gonna let a mistake live out in public daylight um and i was you know oh i do this all the time i work till four in the morning in the studio and this and that and derek this is one of our conflicts when we're working derek was like you do that sitting at a desk in a studio you're up on a ladder this is stupid this isn't safe we can come back tomorrow it's gonna be fine and i refused yeah cut um cut to about four o'clock in the morning and I called Derek because I had just fallen off the of ladder and landed on a paint can and <sighs> it turns out that I broke my wrist on my dominant hand I have a nice scar where I have about seven screws and a titanium plate now um that caused me to reflect on the way that I was motivating myself I bet um, I mean, you could you could have died I mean, it could have been rough. It was on concrete, and that paint can could have hit my head instead of my hand. It was yeah. It was oh. uh, a situation. So, um, I actually it ended up being a positive experience because I finally slowed down and I like took some rest and I um, went out to BC and met up with uh, some family of yours, the Millers, who were... Hannah was throwing this little music festival for the first time. And it was quite the experience, where I, usually I would be like on it and like trying to help and like make all these things happen and it went sideways we got shut down by the cops and this and that (laughs) but i had to just kind of be zen about it and let things happen and um yeah coming from that i think there used to be a draw impulse for me to when i was feeling uh the waves that i go through um i would like try and force my way through it um and these days i kind of treat it more like the weather um where you know negativity rolls through and I have these really lows. Um, and you know, I try to, I try to keep myself active as much as I can through them, but I'm also patient with myself and I forgive myself if I end up having to just sit on the couch and stare at the wall for a few hours in a day or, or not get things done. And, um, yeah, again, cyclically and and like understanding that this is a thing that comes and it goes and I'm going to have those other, those high periods. And, um, that's particularly something that I deal with, um, knowing that uh, I have bipolar disorder, um, type one, which is very deep waves, um, yeah. really high highs and really low lows, and um, yeah, I work. Um, I have medication and therapy, which helps me through that. And you know, um, it's something that I have to live with. We can we can mitigate and we can do as much as we can, but um, ultimately, it's. I'm gonna experience those um, those lows in particular. it's a, It's much easier to manage the mania end of things and to keep myself from catapulting into the stratosphere. Um, but the depression is something that has been with me for a long time, mm. um, and I think will still come and go. Um, a big thing that helps me, just with the way that my brain works, I keep a daily journal just of like jot notes of like what I did and how I felt. Mm. And, and that can help me when I hit those low moments where I feel like, I feel like this all the time. Like it, when I drop into those depressed periods, it, it feels so overwhelming and it feels like I f- I've felt that way for years and it's all that right. I ever feel. It feels permanent. It feels, yeah, so permanent. It feels so, um, it feels like the thing that sits underneath of like all the delusion of happiness or something. Mm. Um, but I have this record that I can go back to and I can look at all the things that I've done and the people that I've talked with and the, um... The way that I felt, I I log in those things, you know, like, was it a good day or was it a bad day? And how how did we feel? And that was really useful coming out of some significant depressed periods where, like, I could sort of, you know, I could weigh the numbers. And, you know, it, even and if it was a bad week, you know, you know, four days out of seven might have been bad. Five days out of seven might have been bad. But there were still two good ones. And, like, yeah, as time went along, those numbers got better. And it shifted mm-hmm. at, at, and, you know... Now I was having a handful of bad days in a month and, um, that, I don't know. My brain works with numbers a lot of times. So that just like helped me to like, kind of get a perspective outside of this, like little microcosm that you drop into when I'm experiencing depression.
0: Um, The, the darkness, when you're in the darkness can feel like that's all there is and then all it takes to make that different is one, you know, the light breaking through the tiniest little bit yeah. from in one little place I, to show uh, that it's, it's no longer dark. Yeah. I had, there's, um, there's some
1: light when we were working on the Texaco and I was having a miserable time, Derek asked like, what, what could we do that would make you feel better? And I was like, I could paint one damn line that I like. (laughs) Uh, and then I did. And I started to feel better immediately after. And then we brought out the sprayer the next day and we blocked in the sun, uh, the reflection. And you know, from that like one moment, it started, it started to pick up and yeah, yeah. Sometimes that's all it takes. And sometimes you just gotta be patient and, Mm. and wait for it. And, um, and yeah, forgive yourself if, uh, if you're feeling rough for a little
0: while. well, Kyle, it sounds like you have some really healthy and productive and, I mean, and, and also a really great support system, but also just in your own strategies and tools that you have that, and that you use, like the journaling and mm-hmm. just challenging yourself to, to change your perspective by focusing on some of the good and mm-hmm. that it's not all bad. And all, all of that sounds like it's um, a really healthy way of, of managing um, your mental health, managing just your, um, your, out, your outlook mm-hmm. and getting through a project, getting through a day. I think, I think with a lot of mental health, uh, with a lot of mental illnesses, there's a tendency or risk towards, um, like self-medicating, right. And, and just, and self-harm or self-destructive mm-hmm. patterns. Um, has that been something that you've struggled with or have, have overcome or have you yeah. fortunately been think, yeah. able uh, to avoid that
1: yeah definitely and and I touched on it with my like little story earlier but um yeah like this like self-loathing self-destructive sort of drive was something that I spent a lot of time with um and that's a a big part of where my first book Gone Fishing comes out of that came out of a, a period of pretty prolonged um depression um you know Um, there'd be good months in the, in the picture, but it was years that I was, uh, sort of sitting on this, this bedrock state that I, um, would pop out of whenever I was around people, I would be able to like get out of that feeling. And, and so I think that it was invisible in a lot of ways, Mm. but as soon as I would go home and I would like, um, be by myself, all of a sudden this, this sort of stuff would come back and yeah, my, my real Achilles heel was overworking myself and was, um, was pushing myself to the limit and um yeah i've luckily not struggled too much with like substance abuse or this sort of thing other than cigarettes now through the pandemic <laughs> but, nicotine but that got but overworking me. <laughs> is like a form of self-abuse in it way is it, too, isn't it, it really is and it really was yeah. um and that's um that fall and that broken wrist was a was a real break point for me um you know um it was the break that i needed and the the mm-hmm. universe was was telling me in no uncertain terms that i needed to reassess the way that i
0: was uh, approaching that uh, yeah you were literally forced to put down the paintbrush mm-hmm. <laughs> or the roller or whatever especially being your dominant hand right like mm-hmm. you just were forced to stop and accept with, and be with what is
1: yeah and, and it was the lesson that i needed you know um as much as i might not have wished a broken wrist on myself um yeah you know, uh, good came from it. And I, and I think that I've got healthier practices heading forward. Um, also like, um, it's, it's fun to talking about like the way that the book, you know, is this personal thing that's informed by me and then informs me, you know, the, the first book really did come out of this, this sense of loneliness and depression. And Ryan and I had no friends and we just worked on this book together. (laughs) And then after that book came out and we started working on book two, we connected with, you know a really wonderful and vibrant queer community in calgary and um both of us started exploring drag and we were like really like expanding our own feelings and i it's funny that i wrote this book about a man like an old man and that's really the way that i felt at at that time i felt like just uh i don't know towards uh if if you i like the the metaphor of like an old soul or something but i very much felt that and with this return to Ed's youth in the 70s, I've very much felt that myself. Um, Hmm. And I've found a lot of, a lot of those things that we wrote into Ed's story are experiences that I was sort of going through at that time and, you know, just starting to understand. And now that it's coming out, it's a a really interesting way of looking back on, you know, the personal growth that both Ryan and I have had through this period.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to say, Kyle, that I'm so sorry that you had those years that were so dark and that a lot of us around you in your circle of friends and community didn't know that you're having those struggles and just acknowledge that, um, that that really sucks that you went through that and I'm sorry and wish that I would have known more and been able to support you more through those times. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, a lot of people,
1: we really didn't, I don't know that we like grew up with a lot of understanding of mental health and, you know, it was, uh, really a thing that was swept under the rug. And, you know, um, this bipolar diagnosis went undiagnosed for years. It wasn't until just after my first book came out that I actually had a diagnosis. And, um, I don't know, even if I had that, I think if I didn't have the knowledge that I have now, when I came to that, um, like if I had received that diagnosis in high school, um, you know, it was it was hard at any age. Um, you know, you're you're now dealing with this idea that you're mentally ill and uh, that you're. It was kind of relieving, though, to understand that my brain worked differently than a lot of other people's. Yeah. Um, because when I was in those really depressed periods, I thought this is how everyone feels. You know, and like right. the whole world must be this miserable, and it must be this miserable place where, you know, you just get these brief moments of temporary satisfaction, and then it's gone, and but you're back in the cold. Is, and is the bad. baseline is yeah. this. Um. So it was kind of relieving, and it allows me to like think of myself differently, and to yeah approach myself with that patience that
0: and that grace that I've come to. Mm. I'm so glad to hear that, and and also I'm sure knowing just that. Oh well, this explains a lot of it. So there's mm-hmm. there's a, a reason, and there's also maybe some some solutions. There's medication. There's therapy. There's things mm-hmm. that can move that baseline to a better place. Yeah, it definitely like
1: was a little bit validating to be like, oh, okay. Like, that depression that I experienced was a legitimate medical condition, you know? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Because when, when you're going through it, you feel like, oh, this is, you know, I'm just like everybody else and everybody else seems to be fine, so why can't I just snap out of it? Why can't I just, like, you know, um, you know other people just live happy lives. I should be able to do that, too, and without therapy or medication or this or that, mm. you know? Um, and... I don't think that's very fair to yourself um no you know uh yeah you're really uh it's the the rough way to go through uh, the anything to like deny any help that's offered
0: to you yeah yeah well you definitely seem like you've gotten to a place where you're embracing your whole self mm-hmm. um, in all of in all of the ways that um, just in in the, the fullness of your expression of your art and the embracing of your queer identity and mm-hmm. the embracing of your mental health diagnosis, things that are not easy to like, just shout from the rooftops, Hey, this is me. Yeah. But you're doing that in a way that is so loving of yourself mm-hmm. and that's inspiring. And I think that this, your story and you sharing it today on the podcast and you sharing your art and you sharing your story through Ed, right? Through, mm-hmm. um, through the pass me by series. And being public and explicit and intentional in the way that you're sharing your story and that's like that public um explicit public in, intentional explicit pie yeah. is a uh, the pie acronym in the in the united church we have um on march 14th 3.14 pie day yeah 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 we have uh, like a, a PI pie day that celebrates um just all that is all that that is uh, mm-hmm. in terms of being public, uh, intentional, and explicit in our inclusivity of the queer community, of of just being inclusive of all people, and so mm-hmm. at our church here, we're super intentional about mm-hmm. that with things like our rainbow on the sidewalk as you come up to the doors. Yeah, that was a
1: that was a thing that excited me about uh, the opportunity here. You know, I've I've really appreciated that that is um, a queer affirming signal. You know, and, and across from a school in a in a town of 800 people where. Um, you know, I know how I felt growing up in right? rural and I Alberta. felt so alone in what I was experiencing. Um, and yeah. And like, even this, uh, is, you know, uh, using some of the colors that I had painted for a, uh, a mural that was inspired by the Transflake, um, before. So these pinks and yeah. blues in the wings here. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not quite, quite exactly those colors. We've got purples in there too, but yeah. you know, but ties I, I sort it. of had that, um, sitting in my heart when I was painting it for yep. sure. Um, and yeah, talking about like public intention, you know, that's the thing that I apply both in as in the art that I make um, and in the person that I try to be. Um, a lot of times like uh, with, you know, embracing non-binary identity and using they them pronouns and um, in spaces where I feel safe to, you know, dressing in sort of like a high, a more femme or high femme fashion. You know, I really try to be a person that I wish I saw growing up. Hmm. Um, you know, hmm. uh, I try to be a person that folks who feel like me um can maybe look up to and can you know see making this art and you know making these vulnerable stories um that talk about you know mental health and family and uh and queer identity um so yeah it, it is a a very intentional process both in the art and in who I try to be as a person
0: yeah that's that's super obvious to mm-hmm. me anyway and we don't get to spend tons of time together. So if the, if I'm seeing that coming across that clearly and that loudly in what you share on social media or when we connect or in the work that you're doing, then I'm sure the impact is reaching a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think you should be really proud of that. Well, thank you. So I appreciate I'm, that. I think we'll maybe wrap it up here because mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a, we've kind of come full circle back to that cyclical way of looking at the world but um yeah I just wanted to, to acknowledge how the way you're living your life it really is making a difference for others and um and for yourself you've just you've picked yourself up and taken yourself to this this wonderful place of embracing who you are and living so fully and I know that it's gonna take you to incredible places in the future too with your work and with your relationships and your impact in the community here. And I just wanna thank you on behalf of our community of listeners, but also the Basha community, the Basha United Church community and church family um, for putting these beautiful angel wings on our wall (laughs) and for beautifying the town with Derek, with the other murals and sharing your story and being who you are.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you're very welcome and thank you for having me. Yeah, very pleased that uh, I could, uh, it feels very uh, like Joseph Campbell's hero journey to like go out into the world and like, you know, get your skills and your sword and your this and that. And then uh, in my case, it's a brush and come back to like the home community and sort of enrich it through that experience that I've had.
0: Yeah, you're definitely doing that, Kyle. So keep it up. And thank you for this conversation. This was great and a lot of fun. And thank you for the coffee. You're welcome. (laughs) And thank you everyone for listening today. Um, just as we're wrapping this up, there's a group of people arriving at the church here that I'm waving to, and, uh, it just feels like a really happening place with great energy and, uh, this beautiful mural here sitting with, with Kyle. This has been so enjoyable. Um, so thank you for listening today and joining us. And, uh, if you'd like to check out more episodes of this podcast, you can find Six Ways from Sunday on, uh, iTunes or on your podcast app, on your mobile device, And you can also find past episodes on our website, which is risingspiritministry.com. And we also have on the website um, lots of links to other resources like our uh, minister here, Robin King. His weekly blog is posted there, his weekly uh, Sunday morning sermons and archives of our uh, worship services. Lots of cool stuff to check out. Um, So please do that and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, New episode every second Friday. All right. That's it for now. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you everyone for listening and take care and be well.